Beloved, in our existence, there is the cycle of life and death. That is inescapable. That is part and parcel of human existence. Uh, We are born, and even as we are born, in a sense, we are born dying, a cycle of life and death. It is unavoidable, except that the child of God in Christ, we are promised that we may and will escape death. Now, not physical death. The child of God is not promised that we will escape physical death, but God tells us the God who does not, cannot, and will never lie promises that in Christ the second death, the eternal death, has no power over his child. And as part of the Christmas message that we rejoice, that we celebrate, it's not merely that we escape the spiritual death, the second death, but also we are given at the point of conversion as, in a sense, a down payment on the eternal life that we enjoy in Christ. We have rest. We have comfort from the God of all comforts. We have eternal Sabbath rest. Now, when you think of the word comfort, you think of the word comfortable perhaps. In our Western society, we ought not think in this context here of a couch. There are no couch potatoes in Christianity, or at least there ought not be any couch potatoes. Let me put it this way, state it a different way. There is no couch potato-ism in biblical Christianity. We are a working people. We are a working people who are at rest, not physical rest per se, but spiritual rest, mental rest, emotional rest, because we know the certificate of debt, the certificate of death that we owe and that we deserve because of our sin has been paid for by the baby that was born who grew up and died as a man. In a word, we are a comforted people. Please take your Bibles and open to Isaiah chapter 7. Now, when I read the portion of Scripture from Isaiah 7, 9, and chapter 40, last Lord's Day, at that time I wasn't thinking or anticipating that I would return to this. But as this week was going on, and in the context of this Christmas season, my heart was drawn back to this passage. So I'm going to do the same reading I did last week, and actually this morning it will be the texts that we will look at. Isaiah 7, verse 14, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, and then Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of God, beloved. Hear the word, dear friend, beginning in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And then in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And then over in chapter 40, verses 1 through 5, this is the word of God here. 
where out of his grace and mercy, God says through the prophet Isaiah to the nation of Israel, God says out of his grace and mercy, beloved, to you and to me, comfort, O oh comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Beloved, this is the word of God that's been read in you're hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, as we would traverse through these three magnificent sections from the book of Isaiah, there are six anchors, beloved, to comfort your soul in this Christmas season. You see, it is right and it is fitting, it is proper and it is appropriate for us at this time to consider Jesus' birth and the ramifications of the incarnation, to ponder God's rescue mission, and that it is worth indeed celebrating. On this Christmas Eve, beloved, the title of the sermon this morning is Emmanuel's Comfort. So let's look at the first anchor that God has here to comfort your soul and my soul in this Christmas season, which is the mystery of a baby. The mystery of a baby. The mystery of a virgin conception. It's a mystery. It is a miracle. Now we know that our Western society has commercialized and sentimentalized Christmas. But there is a distinction between the holiday of Christmas and the event of which Christmas is born out of. And even the holiday of Christmas with all its trappings and accoutrements, there are some nice things that we can enjoy in Christ. But the event that spawned our Christmas celebration is the most significant event in the history of humanity. A virgin conception, the virgin conception of Jesus Christ is, beloved, is, dear friend, the most significant event in all of humanity. It is the central miracle, the incarnation, God being born as a man, being born as a baby and growing up as a man, 100% God and 100% man. That is the central miracle of biblical Christianity. And as we continue on, we can ask the question in this sin-stained world, in what the prophet Jeremiah calls this present misery, is there hope? When we see what's going on in the world, at the world scale, at the uh, more local scale, whatever it may be, is there hope? If there is, where is it to be found? And the prophet Isaiah says it is to be found in a child. That's why, as we read chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah says, Therefore, the Lord himself, Yahweh himself, will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, a child and a son. And then two chapters later, again, the same two couplet, a child and a son. Chapter 9, verse 6, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. 
Beloved, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, we understand that we approach all of Scripture figuratively on our knees, perhaps literally sometimes as well. These passages no less than any other, no more than any other. The wonder of wonders of a virgin who is with child should drive us again figuratively or even literally to our knees. This is the mystery of the incarnation. This is the hope of salvation. And this is the same thread, the same thought that the angel had when he spoke to the godly shepherds in the valley outside of Bethlehem, outside of Jerusalem. Luke 2, verses 11 and 12. The very, very good news that today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, I'm not going to elaborate at great lengths on this dimension because I covered this last Lord's Day when we went through this. But before we finish up this first anchor of comfort for your soul and my soul in this Christmas season, let me ask the question, why did God choose the small village of Bethlehem? Why didn't he choose Jerusalem? Why didn't he choose Rome? Why did he choose Florence or Ash Fork instead of Phoenix, so to speak? We could ask the question. And beloved, the point here is the insignificance of Bethlehem. No offense if you're from Florence or from Ash Fork. That's not the point here. But the insignificance of Bethlehem, the littleness of Bethlehem shows. It's one more reminder of what we get, what we see from the very beginning of God's written revelation to man from Genesis all the way through that God does not save on the basis of greatness or of merit or of achievement. Salvation begins and ends with God. It is a gift of God. And even this dynamic of a son, of a child through which sinners could be forgiven, we could be forgiven of our sin. This is also part and parcel of what is perhaps the most well-known or well-memorized verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that all who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Dear friend, that is the hope of salvation. That is what is at the center of the rejoicing that we do at Christmas. So the mystery of a baby. The second anchor to comfort our souls in this Christmas season is the divinity of the baby. As I said before, the incarnation is a central miracle of all Christianity. And that is why Isaiah finishes up verse 14 of chapter 7. And she will call this child, this son, whom the virgin will bear, she will call his name Emmanuel. Uh, the angel, most likely Gabriel, told Joseph, Mary's husband, the earthly father of Jesus, the legal father of Jesus, but not the biological father of Jesus. As recorded by Matthew 1.23, he tells uh, excuse me, he tells Joseph, he gives a translation of the word Emmanuel. He says, behold, the virgin shall be with child and she'll bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's a direct quote from Isaiah 7:14. Then Matthew adds from the angel, which translated means God with us. So 
Joseph, who was a Jew, understood that Emmanuel means God with us. But this good news is not just for Israel. It is for the Jew and the Gentile. Emmanuel, God with us. Beloved, dear friend, that is the meaning of Christmas. And even as we consider this, we consider the wonder and kind of put the accent on a couple different sides. The wonder and the majesty of God with us. And the wonder and the mystery of God with us. That is the divinity and that is the humanity. The second and third anchors of comfort that we are looking at this morning. You see, we very often tend to focus our attention on the fact of the infancy of Jesus there in the feeding trough in the manger. And he was, of course, an infant. He was a brand new baby. But the greater wonder is not his infancy, it is his deity. More astonishing or surprising than a baby in a feeding trough in a stable is this baby. This baby here is the creator of the heavens and the earth. So, beloved, dear friend, God with us, Emmanuel, is the promise of incarnate deity. And we think that the glory of God, in a sense, is hidden in the baby bump of a godly teenager. Uh, Mary was likely 13, probably not older than 14, godly Mary. She was a godly, wonderful young lady. She, she was in need of salvation. That's why Mary, in her song, described the baby would be her Lord, would be her Savior. But she was a godly young baby, and she had that little baby bump when she was first coming, and inside that baby bump was the veiled glory of God. Divine glory was veiled in a baby after birth that was sleeping in a feeding trough in a stable. Or we can think of that first Christmas morning of godly, sweet Mary who loved her baby even though she had a very good understanding of precisely who he is and what his role would be. She loved him as her 100% human baby. Surely, sweet, godly, 13, 14-year-old Mary kissed the face of her little baby. And in a very real sense, when she did that, she was kissing the face of God. And for the third time, the incarnation is the central miracle of Christianity. That is why, without the incarnation, Christianity is not even a good story. Uh, without the incarnation, our faith is worthless. Without the incarnation, uh, Christians are among people most to be pitied. Without the incarna incarnation, most tragically, Christianity means nothing. And the point here is this, the <clears throat> difference on this Christmas season or on in any Christmas season, the difference between believing the baby that most of the Western world for all these years have celebrated, the difference between understanding that that baby is God versus understanding that baby is not God is not the difference between Christianity and Judaism. It is not fundamentally the difference between Christianity and Islam or Christianity and Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness. The difference between believing the baby is God in human form and not believing the baby is God in human form is the difference between belief and unbelief. It's the difference between salvation and not being saved. It's the difference between heaven and hell. So there is the mystery of a baby. There is the divinity of 
this baby. The third anchor, as I already alluded to, is the humanity of this baby. 100% God and 100% man. Again, the wonder and majesty of God with us and the wonder and mystery of God with us. The necessary humanity of this baby. And so, we can ask, what is the purpose of Christmas? Uh, the purpose, the ultimate purpose, the ultimate goal of the incarnation is the same as the ultimate purpose and goal of everything else in God's universe, namely the glory of God. At the human level, as that overarching purpose is applied to you and me, the purpose, the main point of the incarnation is the salvation of sinners. You see, the storyline of the Bible, the storyline of Isaiah 7, 9, and 40, the storyline beginning back in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 all the way through is never about man seeking God. It is always God seeking man. It is the omnipotent creator God of the universe coming down on a rescue mission to save us and even more importantly to give himself glory. Now let me pause here for a second because as good students of the word, we look here at Isaiah 7 and 9 and 40, we need to understand the background and the backdrop of what was going on in the nation of Israel. We know from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, that Isaiah prophesied during the reign of four kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. There were three good kings and there was one not good king called Ahaz. And in fact, in chapter 7, verse 1, this direct promise that we get in verse 14 of the chapter is given by God through Isaiah to this king Ahaz. And Ahaz was not just a not good king. He was one of the most wicked and corrupt and evil kings of the southern kingdom of Judah that sat on the throne that God had promised to David. In fact, Ahaz was so evil and corrupt we know from 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 3, that he actually took his babies and passed them through the fire. He sacrificed his, some of his babies to the pagan god Molech because he was going after the gods and the ways and the culture of the surrounding nations. And so this wicked king had turned from God, and even most of the nation of Judah had also turned from God. You see, their problem was they had never got the idolatry out of their system. And so the situation here is that the southern kingdom of Judah at the time of Ahaz, when he wrote this, they were being threatened by the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, the entire nation of Israel was split in two into the southern kingdom of Judah and then the ten northern tribes into the northern tribe of Israel. So here in Isaiah chapter 7, the southern kingdom of Judah is being threatened by invasion and extinction at the hand of the northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria. And what God is telling even this wicked king Ahaz is, don't be concerned about those two kings, the Pekah and the king of Syria. Don't, they're, they're like smoldering firebrands. My seal of favor is set on the promises that God had given to David. So you don't need to be concerned about them. And in fact, what God tells Ahaz is, you ask me any sign you wish, a sign as high as the heavens or a sign as low as the earth, and I will give you whatever sign you want. And what this wicked king says 
in, I think, around verse 4 or 5 of the chapter is, oh, I'm not going to ask of a sign of the Lord. And that's basically false piety. That is not Ahaz trusting the Lord and his promise. That is this wicked king who doesn't want to have anything to do whatsoever with the Lord. So that is the situation. And we might think that with this kind of background, that when this wicked king has turned from God, when the country of Judah has turned from God, that God would turn from them. But that's not what he does. And God sends Isaiah with a message for Ahaz, that they don't need to fear the alliance of Israel and Syria, but Ahaz refuses God's gracious promise and spurns God's merciful warning. And while we might expect God would turn from them and God would at this point have a strong word of condemnation and rebuke, that's not what he does. He has a message of mercy and grace. God is not done with Judah. So he sends Isaiah with a message of good news, of very, very good news, of as good of news as could possibly be given. You see, God won't permit Ahaz to be overthrown from the throne of David, not because this wicked king deserves it, but because God had made a promise to David. And Ahaz represents a link in God's promise. And beloved, dear friend, one way to understand this is man's unbelief does not nullify the promises of God. God is powerfully merciful and God always keeps his word. He keeps his word of chastening and he keeps his word of comfort. And to be sure, God does not and will not tolerate sin. He has set, God has set a standard of perfect holiness. One sin will separate a man or a woman from God forever. And the reality is, none of us go 10 seconds of our life without sin. Not the sin of adultery or murder or arson, But none of us love, for example, the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength for even 10 seconds. We all fall infinitely short of this standard. And God's just punishment for sin was spelled out by him all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Before Adam and Eve sinned, before Adam took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the one tree that God said you may not eat of, they ate of. And even before that, God had told them in Genesis 2, verse 17, he said, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was where God had spelled out in very clear, unmistakable language that the punishment for sin is death. And beloved, dear friend, all of this takes us back to a portion of the Christmas message that we don't often think of. Namely, that those soft little hands of that baby in the manger were fashioned by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary so that one day, some 30 years later, those, nails, those uh, hands would have nails driven through them. Those beautiful little infant feet that couldn't even begin to walk on that first Christmas Eve night would one day walk up a dusty hill and also be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head and the sparking lies was made so that one day evil wicked men would drive a crown of thorns into that 
brow. That sweet little infant, soft, tender body was fashioned so that one day a spear would be thrust into it and ripped it open. That beautiful little baby, perfect back would grow up and one day be shredded by the scourge of the whips. You see, this is part and parcel of the Christmas message, as somber and as dark as that might seem, because the very heart of the Christmas message is a message of salvation and substitution, of Jesus Christ suffering the wrath of God on the cross, of Jesus Christ taking the punishment of death on my behalf, on your behalf. This is why the angel told Joseph, as we already saw, you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Jesus, or Jesus, the way our friends south of the border would say, or Hebrew brothers would say Joshua or Yeshua. It means Yahweh saves. Beloved, dear friend, that is the heart of the Christmas message. Jesus was born. He lived and died to save sinners from the righteous fury of God, to quench the wrath of God, the just wrath of God, to nail our death certificate, the one that I deserve, your death certificate that you deserve, if you're in Christ, to nail that to the cross. A James Montgomery Boyce, before he went home to be with his Lord, had these choice words. He said this, quote, The death of Christ on the cross is the true meaning of the incarnation. The good news is not just that God became man, nor even that death, the great enemy, is conquered. Rather, the good news is sin has been dealt with. Jesus has suffered its penalty for us as our representative so that all who believe in him can look forward to heaven, end quote. Again, beloved, dear friends, salvation and substitution. This is part of the anchor of the mystery of a baby, the divinity of the baby, the humanity of the baby. And finally, the fourth anchor that's related to the baby is the majesty of the baby. And we see this, especially in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Now, from the nation of Israel's standpoint, some years have passed. It's a different time period. And to understand the backdrop of what is taking place when Isaiah wrote chapter 9 to the nation, you could, I commend to you, you could read Jeremiah chapters 8 and 9. gives the full picture of the horror there. One piece of language that Jeremiah uses to describe the situation for the nation of Israel is that Israel was a nation that was figuratively speaking, surrounded by jackals waiting to pounce upon them. It might make us think of time even here and now. And this whole dynamic of a background of disaster and piercing through those dark clouds, a promise of hope. That was the case for Isaiah chapter 7. That's the case for Isaiah chapter 9. At a broader level, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is God chastening the nation. And then chapters 40 through 66 is God's comfort for the nation, a background of disaster and a promise of hope. And in fact, if we think of pretty much the entirety of Scripture or even our human existence, it is a backdrop of disaster and the good word, the promise of hope that God gives in the Bible. But the majesty of this baby, the nobility, 
the splendor, the eminence, the power, the royalty, the sovereignty, the eternity of this baby. In Isaiah 9, verse 6, after he talks about a child will be born, a son will be born, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called, and then he gives these four incredible titles, these four titles of manifold excellencies of God, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. And those four titles of magnificence of God that could spawn a four-part or an eight-part or a four-month sermon series. But just all that to say that these lofty titles describing God are used here by Isaiah to talk about this child, this son that would be born. You see, Isaiah takes the kind of language that Moses had earlier used to describe God himself. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, Moses wrote to the nation, the Lord your God, Yahweh your Elohim, is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Later on, after Isaiah, Nehemiah uses similar language, again describing God. Nehemiah 9, verse 32. Our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps his coven, covenant and loving kindness. So, Moses used that language to describe God. Nehemiah will later use similar language to describe God. Isaiah uses it to describe the baby that we are celebrating's birth. Royalty, sovereignty, the child, the son will be a king and the government will rest on his shoulders. And not just royalty and sovereignty are part of this majesty, but also eternity. His throne will last forever. If you're open there, verse 7, chapter 9, Isaiah says, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And even here, besides the royalty, sovereignty, now the eternity, this eternity dimension will be used later on by the prophet Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and this is in the context of God's prophecy to little insignificant Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2, as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Watch this. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. From eternity past to eternity future brackets the birth of this babe in that manger. And before we leave this, this is the same language that Gabriel, who was likely an archangel, tells Mary. In Luke chapter 1, verse 31, angel the angel Gabriel says to godly Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And then in verse 32, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Majesty, royalty, sovereignty, eternity. You see, 
Jesus, at his first coming, at his first advent, he came as a lamb in humiliation. At his second coming, he will come as the unmistakable king of kings in great exaltation. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. Either by joyful anticipation and love or even by coercion for those who love him and his coming and those who tremble at his coming every tongue will confess and every knee will bow and as we sing in the song how beautiful are the feet that bring the sound of good news and the love of a king and not just the love of a king but the love of the king of kings so This baby, mystery, divinity, humanity, majesty, the fifth anchor, beloved, to comfort your soul this Christmas season is the serenity of his people. Uh, The serenity, of course, goes with the sermon outline. Serenity means calm, tranquility, peace. Uh, Serenity is also a title of honor, respect, or reverence used in speaking to or of royalty. And what takes place here as we go to Isaiah chapter 40, as I mentioned earlier, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, the focus is, is on God chastening his people, or as he often says, chastening this people, which is how God refers to the nation of Israel more often than not in the first 39 chapters. But in chapters 40 through 66, in the second portion of this great book, The pages turn and the focus is not on the chastening, but it is on the comfort. And the theme changes from warning and judgment to comfort. And the sermon title here this morning is Emmanuel's Comfort. That's why when God opens up the second major portion of Isaiah in chapter 40, verse 1, he says, Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Now comfort, it's the Hebrew word naham. It's a word that literally means to breathe deeply. It gives a picture of a calmness, of a composure. Uh, The name Noah, Nehemiah, and the prophet Nahum, those names all come from this root word, which means to console, to soothe, to have compassion for, to show pity to, to give rest to. This Hebrew word is a tender word. It's an affectionate word. It's not a lofty liturgical word from some rarefied atmosphere. It gives the picture of a doctor coming alongside a patient and giving words of encouragement and words of hope. It's a father, it's a mother coming to the bedside of his or her child with words of comfort and words of love. In fact, when we think of a mother's love for her child as we were thinking of Mary and Jesus or we can think of the godly mothers we have here and the great love that a mother has for her children that love that a mother has for her children comes out of the heart and mind of God that's why the prophet Isaiah in the last chapter of his long book Isaiah 66 13 will use this word of comfort again and give the illustration of just like a mother Isaiah 66 verse 13 as one whom his mother comforts so I will comfort you that is from the God of all comforts now the first appearance of this word comfort which can also be translated as rest appears back in Genesis 5 verse 29 when 
Noah's father, we are told, Genesis 5:29, called his name Noah, saying, this one shall give us rest. This one shall give us comfort from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. You see, even all the way back in the antediluvian world, in the world before God's great judgment of flood, the first appearance of this rest, the first appearance of this comfort is with the backdrop of disaster and a word of hope, a promise of rest, a promise of comfort, of a son who will be born who will allow humanity to catch its breath and survive. You see, as we would take this scenario to our time, we realize that since the Garden of Eden, the dust of death has settled upon all of humanity. The black cloud of death hovers over you and me, the human race. That is the background of disaster. But through that piercing, that veil, there is the promise of hope. In creation, God had fixed the principle of physical rest. In salvation, he fixes the promise of spiritual rest, spiritual comfort. That's why Jesus said, come to me. He said, come to me. Jesus the man, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you comfort. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. You will find comfort for your souls. That are the, those are the words from the Prince of Peace, from the God of all comfort. Continuing on, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, the prophet says also to the nation, Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Uh, that last phrase there, double for all her sins, that just means she has received proper punishment. You see, in the same way that earthly fathers, an earthly father who is doing right will have words of comfort for his children and words of chastening as well, our perfectly righteous eternal father in heaven, our father God always has words of comfort and words of chastening. Both are necessary, both are good. That is what is work here. What is at work here? And beloved, dear friend, if there was ever a people that needs to know her warfare has ended, it would be Israel, that her iniquity has been removed. Uh, spiritually speaking, the disease of the sin of the heart has been taken out. It's been removed. It has been covered. It has been paid for. What God is doing here is he's speaking tenderly. The righteous, holy God of the universe is speaking tenderly to a wounded, bruised, anxious fearful people. And I think I mentioned before, he refers to Israel more often than not in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah as this people. But how does he refer to him here, chapter 40, verse 1, my people? And in fact, from chapter 40 through chapter 66, we won't find Israel referred to as this people. It's always my people, my people, my people. Her iniquity has been removed. And then that takes us to verses 3 through 5 here in chapter 40. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now at first blush, 
You don't need to be a Hebrew scholar or a Greek scholar. Somebody doesn't even need to be a Christian to understand that Isaiah 7, 14 and chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 clearly are referring to Jesus Christ. Here in chapter 40, the first five verses, it's not quite as overt. It's not quite as explicit. But when we understand verses 3 through 5 of chapter 40, that is unmistakably referring to John the baptizer, John the forerunner. In fact, all three of the synoptic gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all use this as a reference to the ministry of John the baptizer, John the forerunner, John the Baptist, as some people like to call him. So this is clearly part of this unfolding plan of God of the coming of Messiah. And it's interesting when we think of John. When the word of God came, when after Malachi had finished his prophecy. For some 400 years, there was prophetic silence. There was an intertestamental silence. God was not speaking through prophets for over 400 years. When John, who was the last Old Covenant prophet, the last Old Testament uh, prophet, when he came, it's interesting. The word of God, when it broke the silence, it didn't come to Jerusalem. It didn't come to Rome. It didn't come through an emperor or through a governor or through the high priest. The word of God pierced the silence through and to a man in the wilderness. And John's ministry was a preaching ministry. Uh, we are told Jesus said that he was the greatest man that ever lived on the face of the earth. But John was a forerunner. He was a herald. John himself, when pointing to the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. When John pointed to the one for whom he was preparing the way, he said, he must increase that I must decrease. He had a right understanding, and his was a preaching of repentance for heart preparation and to prepare people to receive the King, to receive the Messiah. In verse 4 of Isaiah, uh, the prophet there said, let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. That was a physical picture of what heralds would do physically from a topographical standpoint in, to prepare the way for the coming of a king. But the way Isaiah is using it here and especially as it was fulfilled in the preaching ministry of John the Baptist, it was not about topography, it was about cardiography. It was about the heart. It was about removing the obstacles and filling the valleys in the heart so as through repentance, so as to prepare the heart to receive the king. The heart preparation and the heart transformation in the gospel message are one and the same as part of the miracle of the new birth. And then wrapping up the last verse that we're looking at in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 5. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. The glory of the Lord. The revelation of the glory of the Lord. And we know from 
Psalm 19, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 19 that God's creation declares the glory, declares his glory, declares the handiwork of what he does. That declares his glory in the general revelation of God to all men. But what Isaiah is saying here is not just a general revelation of God's glory in creation, but there will come a day when there will be a very special revelation of the glory of God. You see, when that baby was born, God revealed his glory in a very special way by being born as a baby, growing up as a child and as a man. When Jesus was born and walked and moved and lived and breathed and died, the glory of God was revealed then. Right now, the glory of God is being revealed in you and in me, in his children. As we are made new creatures in Christ Jesus and in the process of sanctification, as we are being transformed from what to what? As we are being transformed from glory to glory, the glory of God is being revealed in us. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed in the most special, most unveiled way when Jesus comes back the second time. You see, the dawn of this glory rising was his first coming, the first advent. The high noon of God's glory will be his second coming. And when he comes again as a conquering king, it will stay at high noon forever. That sun will never set. And beloved, the glory of the Lord has risen upon us in Christ. We have not seen, you and I have not yet seen its noonday glory. We will one day, but what we have seen up to this point is sufficient. And that's why, as I did the public reading before, Paul said, and he wrote to the church in Corinth, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant in Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Beloved, the God of all comforts, comfort my people. Comfort says your God. So finally, the mystery, divinity, humanity, majesty of the baby, the serenity of his people, finally, the final anchor to comfort your soul this Christmas season, and this will be brief, is the diversity of his people. You see, those mountains that Isaiah spoke of, they are lowered. The crooked ways are straightened. The rough ways are smoothed so that all people, all flesh might see and have access to salvation. That was what Isaiah said at the end of verse 5, and that is what we see in the New Testament. Isaiah 40, verse 5, and all flesh will see it together, both Jew and Gentile, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And this is, of course, the same theme 
and seamless message that we get from the lips of the angel to the shepherds. Luke 2.10, I bring you the good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people, all the peoples, Jew and Gentile, men and women, young and old, slave and free men. The foot the ground at the foot of the cross is open to all. This is, beloved, this is, dear friend, good news for the poor. This is release to the captives. This is sight for the spiritually blind. This is hearing for the spiritually deaf. This is liberation for the spiritually oppressed. Comfort, oh comfort, my people, says your God. The result is hearts free of agitation and upheaval. And beloved, in conclusion, in true conclusion, this promised comfort, this eternal Sabbath rest is not found in a place. It's not found in Jerusalem. It's not found even at this pulpit or in this beautiful edifice of Santan Bible Church. This eternal rest, this perfect comfort that is the promise of God is found in a person. We are pilgrims in Christ journeying towards a promised prize. The prize promised to us by God is this eternal comfort. As we indicated before, the dust of death is settled upon humanity. The black cloud of death hovering over the human race. We understand that man, the way we are born, we can't enjoy this kind of comfort. It demands a very new creation. And that is why I quoted this before. I'll finish with this quote again from the lips of the babe who grew up to be a man, a teacher, a rabbi, a master, when he said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. You will find comfort for your souls. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We praise you for your holiness, for your righteousness, for your justice. We thank you, Lord God, for the eternal plan of redemption. We thank you that there is a way of escape. There is a way to not fall under the black cloud of your righteous judgment on our sin. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sinless life, for your voluntary death, for your great eternal victory over the grave, and for your good words of hope, even understanding rightly the backdrop of disaster which we have earned. We thank you, Lord, for that. And Lord, for anyone here this morning that is not realizing and not owning and not having the promise of this eternal rest, this perfect comfort, Lord, we pray that they would have no peace, they would have no rest until they have the perfect peace, the perfect rest, that we have a down payment for on this side, that you would rescue them, that they would turn to you and embrace you and run to you and ask for forgiveness. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that in your tender mercy, you have promised that anyone who comes to you and asks to be your child, to ask to be forgiven, you would do that. You would adopt them into your family. They would become joint heirs with you for eternal heaven. And all old things will have passed away. New things will have come. May that be so. May there be a great harvest for your glory and for our eternal joy. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, and we celebrate this blessed season. Amen.